Join me, Nina Lockwood, as I talk with people who express their creativity in ways that can inspire the rest of us to recognize our own creativity. Because creativity is not just the domain of a select few. It's who we all are. And if you enjoy these conversations, please like, subscribe, and share them. Thank you. Okay, hello. Welcome to Creativity Conversations. I think this is episode 50, and I'm here with a very special guest, Steve Marks. Steve, happy to have you here. Thanks. Glad to be here. Steve is known as Chef Steve. So as we usually do on these conversations, I'll describe a little bit about Steve and he'll go into more detail with what he's preoccupied with these days. And then we'll just see how the conversation goes. So Chef Steve is a California native, classically trained in Europe. He's worked with some of the titans of the culinary world, including David Chang at, at Momofuku, I hope I pronounced that right. Mm -hmm. And Eric, is it Ripert or Reapert? Repair. Repair, excuse me. At the, well, of course, it's French at Le Bernardin. Locally in Houston, he's the chef owner of the Burger Guys and executive chef for the Tasting Room and BRC. He currently owns Craft Creamery with his wife, Kim Kaiser, and has many local awards for best of in Houston, Texas, and the Sunnyvale, California areas and was a finalist for the 2020 Price Tower Art Center, Frank Lloyd Wright, Chef, Artist, in Residence. Boy, that's a long one. It's a big mouthful, right? Right. <laughs> so I've seen that you've been described as chef, poet, dreamer, lover, where, whether you said this or someone else, some people take a walk in the rain, others just get wet. Okay. What does that mean? Uh, that every experience you have in life is a choice. So instead of just going outside and getting wet, some people choose to take a walk in the rain. Got it. So that's actually not my line. That's, that's, that's attributed to several people, but I think it's probably Tupac Shakur that actually wrote it or maybe oh. Bob Marley, one of the two. They're both credited with, with creating the idea. But that's very much like the way Kim and I look at our world is, um, so I'm a chef, work in the restaurant industry, right? And we have a lot of, uh, in a traditional restaurant, there's a lot of staff. So there'll be 10 people working the line. One of them's having a bad, a horrible day. One of them's having a great day. And one of the things that I try to help my staff focus on is we're all experiencing the same thing here. We're all having exactly the same, we call it service, that it's the same day, same people, same foods going out. That guy's just choosing to experience it different than you are. So I think very much the world is about not the circumstances that surround you, but how you interact with the circumstances that present themselves. Right. Sounds like step number one in the creative process. But possibly, uh, I think you have to be uh, part of it is just being open to um, finding the experience that works for you in the circumstances that are presented. So we could take that in a lot of different directions. When did that first occur to you that you had that option? Um. Uh, I've always thought of it, I think. I've always looked at the, I've, I was one of those kids that looked at the world a little differently than the rest of the kids around me. Um, and I think I've always thought of it, but it didn't really form itself until probably actually until I was working with Kim, I looked back at my working with, right? I'm married to a coach. So even though we don't do traditional coaching, like just having a conversation is coaching, right? It, it's we look at our relationship and our businesses and it's all one thing. So we were always kind of working on it. Right. Um, but then I look back at the way I've experienced things and go, Oh, that was a choice. 
So uh, probably 22 years ago, I worked with a very well-known nationally renowned coach, right? And his thing is everything's a choice. Like everything's a choice. I, it doesn't matter what it is. Everything's a choice. Um, he had this, the first seminar I went to, he had this woman that was petrified of snakes, right? And he said, so why are you afraid of snakes? Have you ever been hurt by a snake? Has a snake ever done anything to you? Like, no. What do you know about snakes? Well, nothing. So why are you afraid of them? It's a choice. You've chosen to be afraid of snakes. And by the end of the half hour, she was holding a bow constrictor, right? Like, like just because everything's a choice. So just a little over 20 years ago, um, I stopped drinking alcohol because I saw what the future was and then I made the choice to just not do that anymore. So I think everything becomes a choice. And then having, looking back through it in retrospect, I go, oh, I've made these choices all along for whatever reasons I've made them. So you're building on the choices that make you more expansive, more creative, more engaged. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, all of that, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think you, you follow your inspiration on what, you know, you come to a fork in the road and you choose the one that inspires you to go this way or that. Yeah. And then you just see what happens. Yeah, and then you're open to whatever the next inspiration is as you follow that path. Like, I think that's really the, at least my creative process is not, um, I know there's people that, so I also try to write. And um, I've taken a lot of seminars and classes and read a lot of books and stuff about how to, how to write. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people out there that say, write, just write, like make time, sit down. I can't do that. Like I have to form the concept before I can sit down and put words. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Hemingway used to say, write like a drunkard, edit like a sober man. So just put words on the paper and then come back to it later and go, oh, that was not smart, but this works. Uh, that's not my process. I can't make time to be creative. It, it lands on me when it's time for it to be there. And it sounds like you don't have a problem if the muse isn't visiting you on any given day. No, because I trust it's there. Mm. And I also trust that, um, that one of the things that we've come to in our, in our work together and with her, with Kim, with her clients is um, it'll come. And if it doesn't come today or it doesn't come the way you think it should, it wasn't supposed to. Yeah. So trying to um, force, if you put your will behind trying to make something happen, that's probably not going to be the best result. Yeah. Well, I was fortunate, as you know, to have Kim on the call earlier, mm -hmm. a few months ago. And uh, I love that way of thinking because it really, to me, embodies a sense of just allowing yourself to be in the flow. If it's here, great. Right. You work with what you have. And if it's not here, then you shift gears and you go on to something else. I think it also takes the pressure off of having to be creative. So um, I have always found, so for in the, in the restaurant world, my best work comes when I set a deadline, but don't force it to happen, right? So I have to launch a menu by such and such a date. I won't sit down and try to like uh, think it through. I'll just go, I'll just kind of put it aside and then pay attention to the rest of the world and it shows up as it as as it's ready and it tends to show up in great big floods like not in little pieces mm -hmm. but rather like almost fully formed groups of thoughts but that's my process yeah sounds very mozartian <laughs> you know where right came. he would just write completely right he would sit down and write completely not not create and edit and fix and finish. Yeah. You know, I'm as we're talking, I'm I'm thinking about how the way you're describing your creative process is really um, helpful or could be helpful to people who don't think they're creative. 
You know, mm. maybe they have a job that isn't traditionally thought of as creative, that they're plugging in certain things into certain slots and there's not much uh, wiggle room to do things in a different way. But I think that, you know, one of the reasons that I started this series was that so many people don't think they're creative and yet what they do every day is creative. They just don't define it that way. I think a lot of people don't um, see the difference between creativity and say painting, for example. Mm. Like they think if you're not creating art, you're not being creative. Yeah. Um, I've said, and it's a line I stole from someone that I cook because I can't paint, <laughs> right? Like, but I've always, that's also always been sort of my, the reason I try to do poetry and I don't do it very well very often is uh, it's a way to be creative to, to kind of get the creative monkeys out of the way. Um, so that the, I think inspiration sometimes is really quiet. Mm. And sometimes if there's, for me at least, if there's a lot of noise rattling around, I have to get the noise out before I can pay attention to the inspiration. And how do you get the noise out? Uh, doing something that's functionally creative. So for example, trying to do poetry or, um, or engaging in other people's you know, traditional art. Um, we, both of us have, Kim and I have both found, we get a lot of inspiration just um, doing something uh, like taking a walk and not doing anything specific around being creative. But we found, especially in her business, when she's kind of stuck with something or thinking about something or trying to figure out how she's gonna, what she's gonna put together, we'll go walk for 20 minutes and with the intention of just walking, not really talking about anything. And within about four or five minutes in the walk, like we're flushing something out. Mm. Yeah. So that sounds like the noise in your collective heads mm -hmm. just starts to dissipate when you're in a different environment, especially something like nature, mm -hmm. so that it's not, the focus isn't on what's going on in the mind. I also think that sometimes you have to, um, if you're, I, I try really hard not to try to be creative, but sometimes it's hard not to think about things. And I find sometimes if, like one of my favorite things in the restaurant to do, to sort of work my creative process is to do just prep work, just knife work, just cut stuff and butchery and, you know, that sort of functional work. and in the, for me, in the flow of actually doing the physical stuff, my mind can be quiet enough that I can listen to the other stuff mm. as opposed to sort of sitting and, and listening to all the noise and all the, just listening to all the conversation that's going on. Yeah. That's actually very similar to what a lot of artists do and actually uh, musicians do as well, right? So if, if artists are trying to get out of that place of I have to create, they'll just doodle or they'll draw or they'll do something where they're moving their body to music and it's coming out on paper and it, there's no agenda. It's just just right. getting in there and starting up the engine or with musicians who play scales or they do something where they're not saying I have to, it's got to be Time to be creative now. They're just letting it flow. And I think that's also true of uh, people who do those morning journals where they're just getting a lot of junk out of the pipeline so mm -hmm. that they have room for something new. Right. That's just a download, right? You're just, you're, for us, it's very much about moving the energy. Yeah. If, if we can move the energy, we've both found, and I've always found, if I can move the energy, then the, there's not so much, I don't know, pressure on the system or whatever it is. Yeah. And how would you define that energy? Um, I think it's, for, for me, it's actually physical. Mm -hmm. Like I have to do something. Um, so I don't know if Kim told you this story, but we had, you know, we've survived the pandemic pretty well. Our relationship is solid. We've not really had any issues. There was one day where both of us had kind of a bad day at the same time. And that's 
extremely rare, first off. And uh, before we went to bed, we just said, we're not going to do that again. Let's, we're going to have a different experience. We're just not going to do that again. And the next day we got up, I got up early. Well, we both got up, but we always get up early. And um, I went and did something physical. And within about five minutes, the path was much more clear than it had been before. that's something that I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that's something that is rarely acknowledged that the more we are inhabiting our bodies and letting our bodies move them that has a real effect on our uh, mindset and our psychology yeah I think it also makes space Mm -hmm. for um however you believe the whatever you believe the inspiration is i mean for me i think it's all energy i don't don't think i don't see a difference between you know calories and sunlight and energy and thought it's it's all energy so i think you have to make uh, if your sort of your bucket is kind of full you got to kind of empty the bucket to make space for the for the new stuff yeah I'd love to shift gears for a second and talk mm-hmm. about your ice cream business, <laughs> okay. how you got into it, and the exotic flavors that you come up with because they're they're fabulous. Yeah. So uh, when pandemic hit, the restaurant I was working at, like you know, almost every restaurant, um, had to we had to close for a while, and then as we shifted out of that. Um, we definitely didn't need the staff. We didn't need as many chefs as we had. There wasn't, you know, they went, they were down I don't know, 80% or something like, like every restaurant was. Mm-hmm. So um, I had taken a consulting job. Um, during that consulting job, previous to that, Kim and I had decided we're going to eat differently about Thanksgiving year before pandemic. And part of that was uh, we're going to treat ourselves a little bit of ice cream couple times a week and most of the ice cream that's in the market is loaded with stuff that I wouldn't consider ice cream it's got gums and starches and stabilizers and chemicals and you know it's got things other than what I think is ice cream in it so we'd been playing with that and then through the consulting when I was doing the consulting I had more sort of functional time in this little restaurant I was working in where I went, well, I wonder if I could make it in different flavors or how I would do that. And just sort of started to experiment, play with it. Um, and then, so that the Christmas before pandemic, um, Kim used to be in the, in the interior design world. And a friend of hers, who's now our interior designer for the business, um, throws this fabulous Christmas party because, you know, the designers do that kind of stuff. And at that dinner party, at that Christmas party, Kim's friend Kristen had said, you and Steve and my brother-in-law John need to meet. Um, and Kim's like, new John, he's a commercial real estate guy. Why, why should they meet? Well, John's doing this new thing where he's investing in, like they call it microfunding, where he invests in small local businesses, mm-hmm. gets them to a particular level, and then gets other people involved in the business. So yeah, okay, we need to do that. And then that kind of went on back burner, you know, holidays and then pandemic, right? Um, and then in June, we got a call from Kristen saying, hey, John, let me meet you guys. How about Wednesday? Like, okay, we'll go Wednesday. Great, let's go find out what this guy's about. And um, there was a beloved uh, chain here in Houston, in Texas, from Houston, but Texas-based chain that had existed for I don't know, since the forties or something that was theoretically for set. It was for sale. Um, there had been some shakeups. The company had really kind of gone downhill and John said, okay, so tell me about how the food gets from like the, from the big truck to the plate. Like we don't understand that part of it, the, the functional part of the restaurant. So we kind of went through that and he's like, okay, so we're going to go buy this company. Um, we just got to raise, you know, $300 million and um, we'll go make the offer. We went, oh yeah, great. Yeah, $300 million. Like, okay, cool. So we'll talk to you in two years. It's like, no, no, I'll have it. I'll have it Monday. <laughs> like, 
So you can't, you don't understand how to make a hamburger, but you can raise $300 million by Monday. Like, okay, not, not a problem. So it turns out that chain wasn't actually available. There was a big political thing going on that they were trying to make something happen. But it was pretty clear after that meeting that we were gonna do something together, us and that investment group. And we met every month or so, just kind of like, here's this idea. Well, the real estate's bad. Here's this idea. Well, that's not, that's not a good idea because of this. And we were, Kim and I were on vacation with her son and a friend of her son's. And we had a meeting coming up following the following week. And I said, hey, should I take some ice cream to the meeting? Like, not with the intention of making ice cream, but with the intention of sometimes you get people, like we said, you take a walk, you do something different, you get people out of their, I don't know if you'd call it comfort zone, but definitely out of their, their traditional position. And things, sometimes the conversation changes. So we took this we took our big cooler in and John's like, oh, what's in the cooler, you know? So we put stuff on the table, we tasted the vanilla, yeah, it's great. Tasted the peanut butter, called his team over. And in the next 45 minutes, we had a business. Like not with the intention of making ice cream, but that's what showed up. So I think that's part of that pay attention to the inspiration thing is, yeah, I, 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 I'm a savory chef. I've been a savory chef for 40 years. I've, and I've what does that always, mean, Steve? I'm sorry. Uh, there's okay. two types of chefs, uh, savory and pastry. Savory is everything other than dessert. So appetizers, meats, proteins, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. veg, that sort of stuff. So I'd been on that side of the house. The pastry side is very different. It's chemistry and um, pastry chefs and savory chefs think very differently about their world, right? So now I had to figure out, now I knew how to make the ice cream. Now I had to figure out how to make it interesting. And you had said like the flavors are interesting. Um, I think that's partially because um, number one, I'm not a pastry chef. So I'm not stuck in the box of here's what pastry, here's what ice cream, here's what desserts look like, right? I just do what I think makes sense. And 90% of the time, other people like it. Sometimes it doesn't work. Like, but I'm willing to make those uh, what other people might call mistakes because that's the um, part of what informs my system, that my thought process is the willingness to, to be wrong, right? The willingness to, to play with things. Um, so you mentioned I worked for Momofuku, which is Dave Chang is well known, like it's a, it's kind of a big deal to work for Mama Fuku. Yeah. And um, one of Kim's favorite stories that I've told her of my time there was, so there's this series on Netflix called Ugly Delicious that Dave did. Um, I'm actually in that, my shoulders in it, my spoons in it, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, but there's the, he did one of the episodes he did was in Vegas where I was working. That's where I was one of the Sioux's. And he's making this cod hot pot thing on as part of the show. He's talking about it, his process or whatever. And the way he worked was uh, he would make a dish and then he would say, okay, guys, taste the dish. Now you go figure it out. He wouldn't give us a recipe. He would give us a direction, right? So I was tasked with making the, what we call in the restaurant business, the formula, the, the recipe for that particular dish that he made on that show. And um, we would see him about every six, eight weeks, something like that. So by the time he came back, we we're like, okay, chef, we, you know, we ran through what have we been doing, what we got, where are we at, right? We got the cod hot pot, we think it's right. And he, it, it's a really spicy dish, right? That's the intention of the dish. And he said, is it spicy enough? And we said, yeah, we think it's perfect. He's like, no, I asked you if it's spicy enough. And there's only one way you know if it's spicy enough, and that's if you've made it too spicy. Like you have to know where the line is. So you can, if you think you've pushed the line until you've gone over it, you haven't found the exact point where this is right, that's wrong. Um, and that's kind of their, their company um, motto for lack of a better term is make smart mistakes. So how do you know where the line is? You have to cross it. So you have to, for in that specific example, 
make it until it's too spicy. And Which then you know how many iterations? Uh, I probably made that dish 30 or 40 times before it was perfect. Um, mostly because we knew what the ingredients were from the beginning, but I was trying to recreate his thought process. Mm. And I watched him make it, but that doesn't mean anything. You know, like um, at a, on a certain level from a, from a culinary concept, um, a couple of grams of soy or of, you know, an extra bit of this or a bit of that makes a huge difference in the final result. So, you know, it's very, it's not something, it's one of those things I would say you wouldn't notice it. You wouldn't, you won't, you wouldn't understand, someone who's not necessarily professional wouldn't understand the difference, but you would notice it if it was wrong. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't know why, but you would notice it. I, I ran a diner in Lake Havasu City, Arizona for a while while I was waiting for Las Vegas to open. And um, I made the, the waitresses crazy because the, you know, the little sugar caddy that's on the, on the little counter, right? Right. Yeah. I want six pink, six yellow and 10 white. And I want them in that order. And I want it facing this way. I'm like why? Because there's something you don't understand is when you walk into it, into the diner and you see the space, right. And the ketchup's on the right and the salt and pepper are on the left in this order and the sugar goes this way. There's a, just a calmness across the way the place looks as opposed to a dissonance because this one's this way and that one's this way. And everything's a little bit wonky as opposed to it's, you wouldn't notice it, but you would feel it if it wasn't that way. So that's, that's uh, quite an amazing perspective because most people, whether they walk into a diner, <clears throat> excuse me, or a restaurant, aren't necessarily going to notice it intellectually, but they will notice it viscerally. Exactly that. And it's interesting because like the waitresses, just like the customers coming in, they don't, they don't think about ketchup's here, mm -hmm. salt and pepper here, sugar is there, and the, the presentation of it. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's, it just suggests to me how much uh, forethought has to go into wants to go into this process of creating not just a plate of food, but a, an entire experience. Yeah, but I don't think it's any different than perhaps what you do when you paint. If you set up your palette with your colors, you probably tend to put them kind of in the same place, right? So you know where your bases are, assuming you paint from a palette. But like um, when we set up the the like the stations where all the food is where we cook from um there's a reason why the things are where they're at because that's for the lack of a better term our palate and if i have to look for where's the tomatoes today where's the this today where's the that today it's gonna take me out of the process of actually the doing and put me into the thinking of where's the this and it's much better in my experience to be not bogged down by the function of it, but to have your, the, the, the restaurant, the kitchen term is mise en place, which literally means Everything. things in place. Yeah. So if you know, I mean, down to which plate is where on, for when you go to plate, like if I have to look for a plate, I've just taken myself out of the system. Yeah. And going back to what you were saying about everything being energy, mm -hmm. it makes a lot of sense for that uh, necessity of ha not only having things be where they where they need to be to make the process uh, flow, mm -hmm. but also that there's a certain taking yourself out of the process or, or being taken out of it. It does disrupt that energy. And I'm thinking that for people who come in to a restaurant that they're, they're, they won't necessarily notice it, 
in the forefront of their mind, but they're going to notice the feel of how everything comes out and the whole mm -hmm. vibe of the place. So yep. I think it's great that you're explaining this because there's so many things that we all take for granted if we're not immersed in that world, right? If I'm not immersed in the world of chefery, I know that's the wrong word, but uh, if I'm not in, immersed in a certain world, I know very little about it. I have certain feelings about it and they can get either enhanced or diminished depending on the artist. Right. I mean, I walk into a restaurant, I see different things than you do. But that's just because I'm tuned to it in a different way than you are. Yeah. Um, you know, if we go to an art gallery and look at painting, you're going to see something differently than I am because you experience it in a different way because of your, um, you know, experience in the creation process of it or just being inhabited in the in yeah. that piece of the art that that part of the production of the the actual physical production of the art. Um, you're going to see it differently than I am. That doesn't mean we're going to necessarily like I'm going to um, we're going to have differing opinions about whether it's good or not. We're just going to see different pieces of it. Yeah, which is where I think it's very cool when you have the opportunity to have different perspectives in a given situation because of this the, a sort of cross pollinization that happens because you see something that I wouldn't see, and then I might see something that you don't see, and then that produces something right. entirely different. That's something, um, so when I'm working on menus, I will send that in that menu around to you know, maybe a dozen people that I trust to tell me what they really think. Like, don't just be nice and pleasant, actually tell me what you think. And um, it'll be people like yourself, and like my best friend happens to be a biochemist who's also very interested in food. And then I'll send it to like my quote unquote foodie friends that really don't know anything about food other than the fact that they have to eat it. And the real question that I, that I want to know from them is, does this stuff make sense to you? Like, not, do you understand it? Not, do you want it? Not, is it something you'd want to buy? But does, do you understand what I'm trying to say? you have a sense for what i'm trying to say with it because i'm for me the the process of putting out a, a, a menu item if it doesn't have a story or a reason behind it i might as well be working for chilies right because they pay well <laughs> and i don't and you if you're and th that's not a disrespect to that to that type of restaurant there's a there's a place for everyone in the marketplace like I don't have an issue with, you know, McDonald's or Chili's or any of those big corporate entities. I think they provide a they provide a service that's great for them, and we, I mean, we use it. It's not a problem. Just not my process. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. I just I I, I don't. Um, for me, I don't want to be that. Like I. I my my Yelp and Google reviews, if that's a you know if that's a uh, measure of anything, mine's are fives and ones, period, and that's exactly what I want, you know, um, like in your world in the art field, there's this uh, this Catholic nun named Sister Wendy who did a oh, right. PBS series Sister Wendy on painting and sculpture and that sort of stuff, and her definition of great art was art that you have an immediate and unchanging reaction to. Mm -hmm. Art that you like or that you don't like. Uh, and she did a, the Maplethorpe, the Piss Christ thing was on display when she was doing that. And she said, this is great art. I knew I hated it the moment I saw it. But that's what great art is, is you have an immediate and unchanging reaction. So, you know. It's very and, evocative, yes. Right, and I, and I think stuff like, you know, chilies and whatever, that's threes. That's if everything is energy and it's a sine wave, right? That stuff is in the middle. I don't want to be in the middle. I don't want to be up here or down here. I either want you to, I want you to be, um, I was raised Catholic and, you know, it's hard to get that book out of your brain when you've been drilled it for, you know, years and years. But there's a passage that says, make your yeas, yay, yay, and your nays, nay, nay, be not lukewarm, be spat from the mouth of God. So either, but you see that also in like, 
Karate Kid and in Star Wars, right? Which are all morality plays anyway. Right. But like, say yes or say no, but don't say maybe because maybe is going to bore me. I love it. So talking about what makes sense to you, uh, I, I know you had some different flavors over the holiday weekend. Mm-hmm as well as one that you described to me on our earlier conversation, but talk about those, the ice cream flavors that you've created that- That other people wouldn't? That other people probably have never thought would ever come together in ice cream. Right, so um, one of the ones that we do regularly, um, I actually have two restaurants that take it from the wholesale side is pho. So pho is a Vietnamese beef noodle soup right and it is beef and it has the the pho has particular spice structure to it it's from it's you know vietnamese so it has like star anise and cinnamon and coriander and um cumin and some other you know a bunch of different spices and then if you've ever had the the dish when you like most vietnamese stuff when you eat it you put fresh herbs in it and like fresh jalapeno and so it has all those flavors in it. And it, it literally tastes like pho. Um, we do brisket ice cream. Um, and there's pieces of beef in the ice cream. Not pieces, no. No, it, but it ha- it, but it is the made flavor. from Yes. Yeah, it's made from beef. It's very beefy, which is that I, I think, um, so one of the things that I strive for, um, there is sort of a rule in food right um that is you know sweet spicy funky um and and umami so it has to have its balance so it has to be sweet and hot and it has to be a little funky some umami and maybe a surprise in there if you if you can do that is funky a technical term it is a very chefy term yeah (laughs) and it's i can tell you what funky foods are, but I can't define it for you. You have to understand, like funky is stuff like fish sauce. Oh, right. Okay, so it has a funk to it. It yeah. has a, it has a, a je ne sais quoi, right? It has a thing that you go, I don't know what that is, but I get it, right? Um, we do, like I said, the brisket ice cream was born of a kind of a dare, or not really a dare, but someone said, I bet you, you need to make all this interesting stuff. Um, so with our, we, one of the big things in Houston is there's a rodeo um, every year. It's a big fundraiser. It's 16 days. Like the whole, all of Houston stops for the rodeo. Like it's a big deal, right? And uh, one of my wholesale customers was doing a, um, a dinner, a, a beer dinner, only beers paired with food. And it was supposed to be for the opening of rodeo. And then when they got canceled, they decided to do it anyway. And the, the chef I was working with said, and I want to do this midway tasting plate, but I think I want to do it for dessert. What can you make for us? So I did cotton candy for them, which is something that they take fairly regularly. And then I'm like, I'm going to do brisket ice cream, right? And it's one of our, I do chicken and waffles too, which is, was available yesterday. Now you tell me about that one. I mean, they all sound wonderfully wild to me, but chicken and waffle? Yeah, it, it works. It's, so I don't, part of my process is not prejudging the outcome, right? I don't want to live in the, that's not going to work. Um, if it doesn't work, it costs me, you know, like 15 bucks, not, not a big deal. And I've also learned, well, let's not do that one again, right? You um, say that with such a straight face. <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, the only the only way, uh, some of this stuff I've always thought, these are things I've always thought would translate well into something sweet mm-hmm. because it kind of, the having that, so that the roasted chicken thing, right, that's the umami. But if you have chicken and waffles, there's sweetness to it, right? The waffle is sweet. Um, you Typically, you're going to have some kind of maple syrup on it. Um, and then... I've always done it where you've served some, you've served like Tabasco with it. So there's some heat to it too. So that's what's in all of, that's what's in our chicken and waffles. It's very, it very much is chicken. 
It definitely tastes of waffles. It's got some maple to it and it's got a little heat on the backside of it. So, and then there's ways to play with where that hits you in the eating process, where the, just using the chemistry of the food and the way your palate works. So, so it, some of it hits the front of your mouth and some of it farther back after you've... No, where in, where in the eating process it hits you. So the we can't affect where heat always hits you in the same place in your palate. The, your, your palate has different sensors in different places. That's just the way it is. But because it's frozen and because it's very much dairy, um, it, it, like I do a jalapeno cornbread, which is a very Southern thing, right? And it comes on corn and it goes out jalapeno because as the, the, um, the receptors for heat are closed down by the temperature, hmm. right? So then as your palate starts to warm up, you can taste the heat, right? And then the next bite you taste locks down those receptors again and now it's not spicy anymore. Now it comes on corn again and it goes out jalapeno. So, you know, we mess with that too, about how, how things, how you, how you, the mechanics of how you taste it. So you, as a chef, you obviously know a lot about the, the chemistry of ingesting. I think you have to. I was just going to say it's probably. I mean, you, as an artist, you understand a lot about how light works, right? how light refracts and reacts and how different, um, um, you know, how things, how you experience whatever your art is. Mm. Um, I think that's one of the things that might separate me a little bit from what some other of my brethren do is that I'm actually interested in the entire experience. Um, as opposed to? Um, so an example, right? Um, I'm concerned with the temperature of the room and how, what the light is like. Can you read the menu? What, what's the, how, what's the type font on the menu and how do the chairs feel? And what is the, how noisy is the room or is it not noisy enough? Because sometimes you want to raise the energy by how noisy it is. Uh, what's the music? What are the, what are the, what do the plates sound like when they, when the forks hit them? sort of all these pieces of the experience that a lot of people do notice, but some people don't. That's something I'm interested in because it's something I notice when I go to other people's restaurants, like the restaurant's too cold. It's the menu is hard to read because it's too dark or the font's wrong or, you know, just that sort of stuff. Yeah. How you, it's, and it's how you interact with the environment. It's like performance art. It very much is. And, and we, we uh, with our staff, we try to give them sort of that um, thought process as much as we can, that it's not, uh, it's not just a mechanical process, but it's just not a, a cup of this and a gram of that. Um, it's very much interactive of the moment. Um, you know, one of the things that I preach to my guys all the time, I don't have guys now, but when I had restaurants that had a lot of staff in it, is you got to taste your food because it's an agricultural product. And you may not have ever sat down and tasted salt, but salt tastes different at different times of the year. Um, you know, your proteins are always going to taste different because it's going to depend on what was the water that the animals were drinking and what feed were they on and what time of the year and how, you know, just all these little micro things that are going to make a difference in how the food works. You know, what's the, when you get some produce in the back door, what do the herbs taste like today? Like, you know, jalapenos, for example, you always taste the chilies because some days they're bell peppers and some days they take your head off and you kind of want to manage that process. Well, I really love what you're saying because you're talking about such a um, um, a full-bodied experience that not only engages the intellect but the emotion and visually and 
everything everything that you and and auditorially and sensorially that it's a it's a <laughs> it's a full body experience that isn't isn't everything well how many people pay attention to that well that's that's the difference though but i mean that's that's kind of what um i, I think we're all here to do something right we're, we're we have a there's a message that we all have to give and what i try to um help my the people in my industry understand is it's not just food on a plate mm -hmm. right it's not just food on a plate anybody can put food on a plate that's not the point it's the difference between food on a plate and an experience is the experience yeah. and we don't pay people for food on a plate right or we pay some of the big corporate entities for food on a plate which is perfectly fine there's not a that's not an issue it's not a problem with that that's just not the part of the that's not what i want to engage in so back to the ice cream right so vanilla and chocolate yeah we make vanilla and chocolate happen to make really good vanilla that is created very consciously i uh, use three kinds of vanilla for three different reasons oh my like there, there's a there's a there's a thought behind why that why this vanilla and that vanilla and this one which one what do they do how much of each that sort of stuff um you know the chocolate is probably the best chocolate ice cream i've ever had um and not just because i make it but because it i think it's the best chocolate ice cream i've ever had so you know like there's plenty of people out there making the same basically the same chocolate vanilla and strawberry i i am not that interested in creating that experience my strawberry is actually strawberry balsamic vinegar because balsamic vinegar tastes more like strawberries than strawberries do. Yeah. If you, you know, one of the things that chefs talk about a lot is what do things actually taste like? Not it tastes like a strawberry, but what does a strawberry taste like? And how do we enhance that flavor and that taste and basically enhancing the experience? And I think that's what sets people apart from, um, from others, for example, right? So, like we have uh, one of the great art things we have here in Houston is we have a, it's called the Rothfuss Chapel. And it was a building that was built specifically for Mark Rothfuss to come in and paint paintings in the building. And um, it has a, it's a, it's in the shape of a, of a, of basically a chapel, a small cathedral. And it has a glass um, like Oculus in the top, right? So you can go in there I've been in there, I don't know, probably a thousand times. And it's never the same because it depends on well, what the, what's the cloud cover like today? What's the angle of the sun? What's the, and you know, Rothko's work is very subtle anyway. And all of that stuff changes the experience so completely where, you know, I've taken friends in there and they go like, oh, I can do that with a roller. Okay. Go ahead. Gotcha. Let's go have some lunch. That's great. <laughs> You know, so much of what you're saying today is reminding me of uh, the quote attributed to Plato, the unexamined life is not worth living. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I hear so much in what you're sharing about the richness of experience that's possible when you put intention into it and intention and also taking off, taking the pressure off just experimenting just playing and just seeing mm -hmm. what happens and not but having that curious carrot you know that keeps mm -hmm. leading you forward i think that's one of the things that um that informs kim's and my relationship personally and informs both of us in our business life is that i am innately curious about the world around me like um i have friends who you know live their lives every day know what they're having for dinner on tuesday know where they're going for vacation at the second week of july like all that sort of stuff i can't do that i i, I have no interest in that that would make me absolutely insane <laughs> it also doesn't seem to be the best use of whatever this is 
right? If, if sort of my thought about it is that we're we're giving this um, these bodies that experience and have all these senses and stuff really be a waste not to use them. You know, you have the you have a mind. Why are you what? Why would you bog yourself down in like in ritual and process when you could experience? Oh, that's such a good point. I see so many people spending so much of their energy worrying about what might happen mm -hmm. or uh, overthinking what's already happened. Right. And the, the walls just get closer and closer when that happens. You know, we, we end up being safe and predictable, thinking that it's, it's better that way. And yet, where's life? Well, what I know about people that try to be safe is usually they, they manifest whatever it is their greatest fear is, mm. right? Because they spend so much time thinking on it, on whatever that fear is. Um, and you know, I don't, whatever your beliefs are, the universe or whatever it is, it doesn't understand the difference between good thoughts and bad thoughts. It only knows thoughts. Right. So whatever you, you're going to get what you focus on. So if you focus on, I sure hope this thing doesn't happen. The universe doesn't hear that. I sure hope this doesn't happen part. All it knows is that's what you're paying attention to. Yeah. Hmm. I love these insights that you're sharing because I see them so uh, applicable to everybody, not just people in the food industry or people hmm. who like to eat, but that there's a way of living that, as you were saying, each of us has a, a unique form of expression. Mm -hmm. And the more we're willing to just see, just be curious. Well, and be open. Like I, I, um, I was raised, but so my parents were basically hippies, right? I was California, born in the 60s. Like my folks were hippies. And one of the things that um, informed kind of their existence is just be open to what's next. Mm. Like, like just, um, you know, I left, I said, I told you I was raised Catholic, but I've basically, the closest thing to what I believe is probably Buddhism. Um, and I started studying it um, back in probably 95. Although you can't really, I learned later, you can't really study Buddhism, like there is no practice. It just is or it isn't. <laughs> and but the word Buddha, his name literally means to be awake, right? So that's that's what I strive for is just to 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 be awake to what's happening, like as opposed to you know being a a nine um, a numb robot and just going through the day and you know, experiencing, letting life happen to you as opposed to, you know, being a part of the process. Yeah. You know, I think that's so valuable now as we're going, we appear to be coming out of the pandemic that so many people have kind of closed off during this past year and more. Um, and narrowed their worlds down. And now there's, sometimes I hear a certain hesitancy in wanting to go back out into the world. Mm -hmm. You know, and I suppose in, uh, to some degree that's wise, especially in terms of unpredictability of, of viruses and, and that world. And yet, I don't know that we need the whole, we need to fully throw ourselves out into the world to to be more awake, to be more curious, to be more open, because we have a world right in front of us. That's true. Yeah, it's it's all right there. I mean, it, it doesn't, it's not like you have to venture out to, um, you know, be curious, to be involved. It's, I mean, it can be a very internal process. It doesn't have to be external. Yeah. Right. But it, but I do think you need to be, if you're not open to it, it's definitely not going to show up, right? 
So that's, I, I may not know a lot, but I'm pretty sure that if you're not paying attention, you're not going to notice it. <laughs> yes. and, uh, and I also know, at least for me, inspiration is very quiet. And typically it shows up once. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't pound on the door. It kind of taps night, taps lightly and just says, hey, pay attention to this thing over here. Um, and there have been things that I've, uh, you know, thought up or whatever, inspirations that I've just not followed that have gone to other people who have done really well with those inspirations. There's a great story about Liz Gilbert meeting think it was Ann Patchett. I might have the the guest wrong, but uh, she Liz Gilbert had an idea for a story which she developed for a certain period of time and then put it on the back burner and then just couldn't really revive it. And she met, I think it was Ann Patchett, and uh, listened to a, uh, an evening that Ann was presenting and they had a really strong bond. And a certain period of time later, Ann Patchett comes out with a book with the exact same storyline. And Liz Gilbert felt like in the, ex the exchange of affection that happened between them, <laughs> the inspiration went from Liz, who was not uh, able to birth it, so to speak, and went over to Ann Patchett, and then she came out with it, almost identical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's... I think the there are things that want to express themselves in our world. And if it's not me that does it, somebody else will do it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, and you know, people do that all the time. They, they see something that was in their mind. They just never followed through on it. And somebody else done it and said, I should have done that. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Anything else that you'd like to share with us today about your perspective on life, food, energy being I just I, I always try to get people just to pay attention to what's going on around them like there is so the our your world even if you don't think it is is so rich with um, inspiration and opportunity and information and you know just the pay attention to what's happening you know like we're Kim and I are working on uh, perhaps a book or something, some, some things around relationships. And one of the things that I try to tell, especially my younger friends is pay attention. Like all the information you need is there. Like everything you need to have a happy, fulfilling relationship is there. You just got to pay attention. And I just don't Maybe think a I lot of, it? well, yeah, you have to do something once you, once you find the, um, there's this John Travolta movie, right, called Phenomenon, where he gets, right, and there's a scene where he's talking to one of the younger guys who, he says, I can see your, someone says, kicked you out again, because your clothes are like this, and she never lets you leave like that, and he's, the younger guy says, well, I just don't understand her, and he says, you got to buy her chairs, because there's a storyline where Travolta is buying these chairs that the female lead is creating not because he needs chairs, but because it's her passion. And what he's telling him is pay attention to what makes, to, to what drives your partner. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's not just true of romantic relationships. It's, I do the same thing with my staff, like find what it is that makes them excited and, and engaged and, and go with it. Try to, try to make it so that they're, um, so you're doing the best you can to make them as complete as give them enough, give them what they need to feel like they're being complete. Mm. Like, I don't think anybody can complete anybody else. I don't, I don't, I think we're all complete on our own. Um, I think it's our job to enhance each other. Mm. That's a great word, enhance. Just like what you're doing with ice cream. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, <laughs> in so many ways there's nothing new about what i do i just have a i come at it from a different angle well a very unique one for sure sure i try i think you do an amazing job so steve tell us where people can find you both uh 
geographically and on social media? Sure. The, um, so if you're in the Houston area, the shop is located in what's called the Montrose. Um, everyone knows the Montrose. Um, 1338 Westheimer is the address of the shop. Uh, website is craftcreamerytx.com. And uh, Facebook and Instagram are both at uh, Craft Creamery HTX. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on this call today. I really sure. enjoyed what you had to share. It was right up my alley, and I hope it's been up the alley of people who are watching or listening. Great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. And thank you so much, everyone who's been here in auditory or visual form. And we will see you later. Thanks for so much for watching. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.